Welcome to Crossroads, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and Christian living. Crossroads is part of the media ministry at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. Get to know us by visiting us online at FAPC.org. Hi, I'm Jamie Staley, Director of Christian Education at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. I am so excited this afternoon to be joined by Sandy Tolan. Sandy Tolan is a best-selling author and an award-winning radio and print journalist who reports on and comments frequently about Palestine and Israel. If you've been attending any of our Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church adult education programs, uh, you will probably know that we are in the midst of talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In the past, in December, we had uh, Dr. Bran from Cornell University come and speak to us about the history of the conflict. And this month, we are going to be joined for a webinar uh, by panelists who will speak to us about their own experiences um, as, as folks who are deeply invested in this um, in this conflict. Sandy Tolan is a professor at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism in Los Angeles. He is also the co-founder of Homelands Production, which has produced international documentaries and features for public radio. Uh, one of the uh, reasons that I asked Sandy to be on our podcast this afternoon is because he is the author of the book, The Lemon Tree, which I know um, several of you hopefully have read. Uh, I know our book group at church has been reading it. Um, and this is a, a, a history, a true story of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and uh, I am thrilled to have Mr. Tolan with us today. So thank you so much for joining me today. I think my first question really is, how how did this, what is your background um, with Israel? How did this even come about, um, this this story? Yeah, well, um, as, I, as a kid, I, I grew up Catholic in, in uh, the upper Midwest in Milwaukee. And uh, that's not necessarily predictive of somebody who's going to become a journalist who writes two books about Israel-Palestine. But um, as I was growing up, one, uh, dear friends of my parents, whose children I became friends with, um, uh, the mom of one of my friends was named Nikki Tulis. Uh, she had fled uh, a Jewish family, had fled uh, Frankfurt right after Hitler came to power and then went to Amsterdam. Um, and she was growing up in Amsterdam. She actually used to play marbles on the street with Anne Frank, believe it or not. Wow. And uh, at one point, of course, the family then had to flee Amsterdam as well. And the boat that they were supposed to get on, um, they didn't get on because the father, who was very devout, um, Shabbat fell and he ended up uh, not buying the tickets for passage and that boat was torpedoed. Um, later, the family got on uh, a boat that, that provided safe passage to South America, and then the family uh, ultimately ended up in Milwaukee, where I grew up. And that was a, a story about um, how Israel was created. That was the way I understood it, as Israel was created as a safe haven 
for Jewish people around the world. And it was a mm. very powerful story um, that I grew up with. And um, as I grew older, I began covering a lot of indigenous stories in uh, Central and South America, doing stories along the U.S.-Mexico border. I began reading up on Israel-Palestine and then met a, a Palestinian journalist uh, in, in a fellowship at Harvard. And uh, we were married for seven years. And during the period of that marriage, uh, her family, I got to know, obviously, her family. And it turned out um, that they were exiles uh, uh, from the 1967 war, the Six-Day War, when they were basically expelled out of uh, the West Bank. Um, and they were in exile in Jordan. Uh, so I began to understand, you know, both my original concept of Israel being a safe haven for the Jews, but also that Palestinians were dispossessed. And I especially began to understand that in terms of the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. And so when the 50th anniversary was coming up, the 50th anniversary of what Israelis call the War of Independence, and Palestinians call the Nakba, or the catastrophe. Um, it's the same event, and 1998 was coming up, and I decided I, I wanted to try to do a radio program. I did, was doing a lot of work at the time for NPR um, through the perspective of two families who have some common ground, and I went looking all over for something like that. I spent weeks going from... Um, Jerusalem to Gaza to the West Bank to Nazareth to Tel Aviv uh, all over Israel and Palestine and finally found the story of two people and one house two families in one house in essentially uh, a metaphorical although very particular uh, example of two peoples on one land and that was the story I, I was yearning to tell from the basis of my own understanding coming into the story as well as all the additional research that I did so that the radio documentary came out in 1998 on fresh air and then it was some years later that I put together a book proposal and the lemon tree was originally published as a book in 2006. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit what what did your what did your research like that look what did your research for that look like? Well, I I'm drawn as a journalist to to storytelling or to what a lot of us call mm. narrative nonfiction, where a book hopefully becomes uh, a nonfiction book hopefully begins to resemble a novel that it's a page turner that you care about the characters that there's plot development it's not just a an assemblage of facts and so I was looking. Jamie, when I was there, when I was traveling um, in those early months of 1998, I was looking for a story that would have that connective tissue that would, would connect the story of two families or two people or two individuals. Um, and I had heard of a lot of different stories. I had heard one story um, that had been related by an American storyteller um, about a, a piano a piano that had been the possession of a Palestinian classical music player, I believe, um, that had been abandoned uh, when the family, uh, the Palestinian family, was forced out of Jerusalem. And then that apartment or that house uh, was later inhabited by a Holocaust survivor from Europe. And so I, and I was looking for a story like that 
to, and I was thinking, you know, for radio, this would be such a beautiful story if I could find the original people and have them play and tell their story. But on further uh, investigation, it turned out that story was more of a story than a true story. Um, <laughs> and so I kept looking. And then eventually I found the story of uh, Bashir and Dahlia and the story of two people um, who at very different times inhabited uh, a house that was built by the Al-Khairi Palestinian family in the 1930s. Uh, and then that family was forced out of their home uh, during the creation of Israel in the, the uh, 1948 war. And uh, the Nakba, as the Palestinians say, uh, they were forced into exile in Ramallah. And a few months later, in, in the end of 1948, uh, a Jewish family from Bulgaria, and mo almost all the Bulgarian Jews had survived uh, the Holocaust. And that in itself, uh, in itself is a remarkable story, but they ended up moving into that very same house. So to me, you had these elements of of safe haven, of longing, of wanting to feel like you belong, of wanting to return home, of wanting a place of safety. It was all, all uh, interwoven between the history and experiences of these two families. And so I went and pursued um, you know, each of the, the two main characters who became the two main characters, Dali Ashkenazi Landau, who was born in Bulgaria in the capital Sofia in, um, I think it was 1948 um, and uh, 47, and the Bashir uh, uh, Al-Khairi, who was born a few years earlier um, in the family compound um, in, in the town of Ramleh, uh, which is the house that they were uh, uh, they were evicted from, or that they fled in 1948. So you had the story of one family in exile longing for nothing else but to return home, and another family, the Ashkenazis, who were growing up um, with this little baby, who was a year old when she arrived, uh, and that became the only home she ever knew. And then one day after the Six-Day War was over, Bashir and his cousins decided they wanted to try to go find their old home. And they showed up at the door and rang the bell of the gate outside of the yard, and uh, Dahlia answered the door. Hmm. It's, it's such a fascinating story. Um, uh, particularly because it seems fictional, like it seems like it's kind of, you know, it, it, you know, it's almost like the perfect, you, you found the perfect people to, to tell the story about. Uh, you mentioned earlier um, that one of your hopes was to find people that shared some common ground or I'm not sure if I got that phrase exactly correct, but as you were, as you were writing the story, as you were telling the story, did you feel like there was a shared common ground between Dahlia and Bashir. I know that there were so many years they told the story over so many years and there was right. ups and downs in their in yes. their friendship. Um, but I guess, yeah, what did ultimately did you feel like there was that common ground or what what were your thoughts? Yes, on? most definitely. Uh, it's a relationship that, I think both would would say if they didn't directly say so themselves to me um, 
it, it goes beyond friendship. Dahlia felt it was a kind of destiny that they were to meet. Um, when they met in that, you know, in that front stone gate that Bashir's father had built in the 1930s, and Bashir had come back to a dozen or so years later, Dahlia opened the door, and she's now a 19-year-old. Oh, actually, it was 20 years or so later. Uh, but Dahlia opened the gate. She was now a 19-year-old student at uh, Tel Aviv University. And there were these three Arab men, as she said, Palestinian cousins, standing at the door asking for permission to see inside their home. She was home alone, and she felt like, you know, really she shouldn't let them in. But she felt like they were vulnerable and they were a little bit afraid because they were in a suddenly a foreign land which was also their own land mm. and she decided to let them in and she said you're welcome and so that was the beginning um and then you know less than a year later uh the the west bank at the time as well as other territories nearby were uh, under occupation by uh, the Israeli army. The West Bank remains under occupation now some 65 or more years later. Uh, but at the time, Dahlia decided to take up Bashir on his invitation to visit the family in exile in Ramallah. And uh, that was an extraordinary visit in so many ways. One, um, to show how far apart they were in their perceptions of what happened and why, um, and how Bashir looked at this as a, as an expulsion, as an uh, as a dispossession, as a catastrophe, and and Dahlia was saying, well, this is the home, only home I ever know knew, but she noticed there was in a glass case, um, some lemons that Bashir had put in a glass case in the home, almost like in a sort of a trophy case or mementos case. And they were drying and almost hardened. And And she asked Bashir, what, what are those there? And she, he said, well, do you remember on one of our visits, because they had had multiple visits, I guess, hmm. um, we asked for some lemons for the tree, from, your, from the lemon tree, which my father planted in the 30s. She said, I, yes, I remember, but what are that? Is that them? He said, yes, we, we, um, we keep them there. And he told the story about one day he couldn't sleep very well and he saw his father, Ahmed, um, w pacing the floor of the home in exile in Ramallah. And, and he was holding the lemons as he walked back and forth in the house in the middle of the night. And later he came, finally, he couldn't come to visit, just couldn't bring himself to visit the home he had been dispossessed from uh, for years, and finally he did come later. And it was quite an event, and the two fathers, Dahlia's father and Bashir father, met each other respectfully. And his father, Ahmed, Bashir's father, said, is the lemon tree still here? And uh, so they, they showed him the tree, and he went there, and by this time he was almost blind. He was very old. and. Um, and he was brushing the leaves and the lemons and just tears streaming down his face. So there was a connection that um, could never really be turned back from, um, and yet there was never any sort of agreement 
politically between the two of them about what had happened and what should happen. Bashir wanted the family to move back. You could imagine. You would, I think anybody would want that. Yeah. Um, and yet Dahlia felt like, well, this is the ho only home I ever know. You can't make two, two wrongs don't make a right. And Bashir is like, yes, but you stole, you stole our land. And so that was an impasse that they never did get past. But I would say that they both would say that this is a relationship unlike any other that they've ever had and that most people probably have ever had. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's it's so tricky to think of that as of the common ground within that because it's you, they don't there's no agreement. It's like a agree to disagree. But how do you agree to disagree to something so incredibly mm -hmm. important yeah. as your as your life as as um, as this as this was to them? And I think that's what makes these conversations um, really really hard. Um, for mm -hmm. for all the sides is because they because each side sees it as their as their as their life as mm -hmm. you know something so incredibly important to them. Um, but that's one of the reasons that I loved this book because I felt like it 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 they 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 were willing to have the conversation, which I think is what is what um, we're hoping to be able to do too is to have conversations. Uh, what Dahlia and Bashir are arguing about is whether the state of Israel should have been created and uh, whether the Palestinians have a right of return. By the way, Dahlia, when her parents died, offered to return the house to Bashir, uh, but said, "I this is a personal decision. I'm not saying the state of Israel should do the same. And Bashir's response was, why not? Uh, if you're doing it, why shouldn't it be extended? But um, they ended up working out a compromise where uh, Dali would create a, a, a place of dialogue for uh, Arab, Israeli, or Palestinian, uh, uh, or Israeli dialogue. And it would also be a kindergarten for the Arab children, the Palestinian children of Israel, on the wish of Bashir, who said, I lost my childhood there. Um, but but the other question, I think, and, and, and the reason I think that, that uh, some churches, including very much so the Presbyterian Church, have become involved, is I think that there, is a, uh, there are acts of conscience to examine what is happening on the ground now. Um, and I think that's a, a different conversation than the one that Bashir and Dahlia have. Obviously it overlaps, but I think if you look at the conditions uh, as they have been for a long time on the ground, Palestine, or in this case, the West Bank in particular, but also Gaza in another way that we can discuss, is essentially remains under military occupation. Um, mm -hmm. And that has been the case since 1967. So, um, you know, it's going on 60 years. Uh, the reality for Palestinians living in lands of hundreds of checkpoints, where in some cases they have to drive hours to go around the checkpoints or around the blockades or the, the military patrols or different settlements, which now surround Palestinian communities, they sometimes take a couple of hours just to go to their neighbors that are just a few miles away or family a few miles away uh, uh, as the crow flies. 
Um, so you have you have settlers who have become increasingly uh, aggressive, and you know burn mosques and burn the Palestinians, uh, rural Palestinian olive orchards, which is um, not only a, a, a part of Palestinian culture, but it's also part of uh, their economy in in rural Palestine, which is increasingly urbanizing. But nevertheless. Um, these are things that have been happening for a really long time. And, uh, you know, when I wrote my, my more recent book, it was about children trying to play music under occupation. And you had stories of 10, 12-year-olds getting stopped at a military checkpoint and uh, ordered to open their violin cases and show, uh, as they were going, say, from Bethlehem to Ramallah, which are supposed to be Palestinian-held areas, uh, they were constantly getting stopped at checkpoints. And at one point, this 10-year-old girl was ordered to play a song on her violin. So mm -hmm. this is a kind of a daily humiliation that hundreds yeah. of thousands of Palestinians, millions really, face. And I think for a church to get involved out of conscience, um, especially when U.S. taxpayer money is providing millions of dollars uh, every year, billions uh, in military aid, I think that that is a different conversation and it's a legitimate uh, topic for discussion. When you were writing The Lemon Tree, it, it clearly you knew, but when you, when you had done um, your radio broadcast initially, um, but over those years of learning the story and learning about the history, how did your perspective change or did it change on on what was going on over there? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, and it actually changed quite a lot. Um, you know, when I first came, the first time I ever went to uh, Israel, Palestine, to Israel and the West Bank and Gaza was 1994. Now, that was almost 30 years ago now, 20, 29 years ago. Uh, and it was right after uh, Israel and, and Jordan had signed a peace treaty and, and more importantly, uh, soon after the so-called Oslo Accords, which many people referred to as the, the peace agreement. Um, and so one of the things that really struck me right away when I first started driving onto the West Bank is that there were these brand new roads. I mean, they were smooth as glass, almost no one on them. I could zip around because I, I had an American passport and I was a journalist. Mm. And um, I found out that these were roads that were made for settlers, for settlers to get from mm. a settlement more easily into Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. And there were few of them, and now there are many of them. And mm. they crisscrossed the West Bank. But I remember asking somebody who was uh, an Israeli uh, architect of these accords, why, why are they there? Um, isn't this supposed to be land that was going to be given over to a, a sovereign Palestinian state? Um, and I never really got a, a, what I found to be an adequate answer. Um, and as I kept going, I mean, that was the first of a couple of dozen trips to the Holy Land. And um, every time I went, there were more settlements. There were more checkpoints. There were more military outposts. There was more hardened infrastructure in what was supposed to be a Palestinian state or what many people took or mistook 
to believe that this was going to lead to a Palestinian state. Um, Yasser Arafat certainly did. A lot of people at the time were quite skeptical, um, and and I became more skeptical every time I went because of the increasing infrastructure. Now you have um, hundreds, many hundreds of settlements surrounding Palestinian villages. You have 17 or 18 settlements that ring East Jerusalem, almost sealing it off from the rest of the West Bank, which means that it's really difficult for Palestinians to legitimately imagine that East Jerusalem will ever be the Palestinian capital. I think very few people hold that dream anymore, or or mm. maybe they realize it's just a fading dream. Mm. As you can see, I, I've become um, more, in the long run, I feel more optimistic, and we can explore that a little bit. But in the short and medium term, I, I feel that the prospects are really grim for the dreams that many Israelis and Palestinians and other people um, Believers or non-believers alike believed in a kind of a just peace and a, and a solution uh, that would that would lead towards some sort of equality. And when we're as far from that as we were 30 years ago. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, but when you say you see some optimism within within there, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question, Jamie. <laughs> um, what do I mean by I see some optimism in the long term? Well, mm. um, one is a kind of a, you know, philosophical idea of, of, you know, the merciful thing about the future is that we don't know what it is. You know, <laughs> we we can say, you know, the earth is, is burning now and the prospects for global warming look really grim for the future of humanity. Many people believe that. And yet we don't know what's going to happen, actually. We don't know if something else is going to come and intervene. We don't know in Palestine and in Israel whether some kind of legitimate Mandela will emerge from one or the other or both communities and say, we can't be safe until we're all safe. We can't have true security until we all feel secure. We can't have, you know, equality until all of us are equal, or at least there's some equity that there hasn't, hasn't existed in decades and decades. I think something is going to emerge at some point which calls upon that, uh, that truth to be reexamined and re-engineered. Hmm. Hmm. I hope so. <laughs> Me too. Hmm. So many, many years ago, I was a journalism student. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of my favorite parts about uh, being a journalism major was was understanding um, that journalists were called to be watchdogs of government. And I wonder in in your writing about these issues, um, where did you see that? that idea um, of being a watchdog play out in your writing? In my writing about, about Israel? About and Israel, yeah. Yeah, well, two things. One is that uh, I wanted, uh, with elementary in particular, and also Children of the Stone, my later book about the Palestinian music school, um, I wanted to tell a story that people wouldn't want to put down. And then in the process, learn things they didn't know 
in a way, I, I kind of jokingly call the lemon tree a history book in disguise. Um, and because it's a story, it's a story of two families, but there's also all this history. And I, and I laced it in there in a way that I felt was not going to overwhelm. Because when you just plunk a bunch of history down in the middle of a, a chapter, it, it can be, you know, drudgery. And so I wanted to, to weave it in, you know. And, and so one of those things that I wanted, I don't know if I would call this being a watchdog, but being, um, you know, an educator in a sense, a, a storyteller, is the story, of, of course, everyone in the United States knows the story of the Holocaust and the creation of Israel mm -hmm. and how Israel was a safe haven or meant to be a safe haven for Jews out of the ashes of the Holocaust. That is a mm -hmm. very familiar story to Americans it's what many of us, uh, Jew or Gentile, were, were raised with. Um, very, very much less known is the story of the Nakba, which I, I'm not equating the Nakba or the Holocaust, just to be clear, I'm not. But the Holocaust and the Nakba have equal weight in the narrative histories, the, the, the meaning the personal and and uh, identity meaning for Israelis and Palestinians. So I felt like I couldn't tell the story and we really can't understand the story of Israel and Palestine without also knowing the story of the Nakba. And this family, the al Khairi family, uh, suffered from it like 750,000 Palestinians at that time also suffered. So I wanted to tell that story. So that wasn't necessarily a watchdog, but also just trying to explore stories that had been untold, which is kind of a calling for me. There at the end, you mentioned um, uh, uh, both Palestinian and, and Israeli people who are, who are uh, trying to reach across that great divide um, mm. to find commonality. Is that something that you have seen a lot of, or is it fairly rare? Well, I, I did see a lot of it, um, but unfortunately there's less today. And one of the reasons mm -hmm. is um, that uh, I think a lot of Palestinians, um, not all of them, but I would say the majority, if you look at the polls at the time that Oslo, the Oslo Accords were signed uh, almost 30 years ago, uh, you have uh, you know, strong indications at the time that even though the Palestinians were essentially giving up the, uh, a huge portion of the, the land that they were dispossessed from, um, they were essentially agreeing to a state uh, on the West Bank and Gaza with a corridor in between and maybe some modest uh, return of refugees to their homelands in what is now Israel. That was, and, and a capital in East Jerusalem, that was kind of the maximalist position uh, based on the Oslo Accords that even that was a probably generous interpretation when we look now at the fact that 60% of the West Bank is still under military occupation and, and Gaza has been basically locked down in a kind of open air prison for, for decades. Um, but at the time, there was a lot uh, a lot of more freedom of movement. There were a lot of dialogue groups. There were a lot of people witnessing each other's history, Palestinians coming to understand the Holocaust in a way that had never really happened before on, on a large scale. 
uh, Israelis learning the story of the Nakba, these dialogue groups that would get together. And I think what happened and what evolved, especially as the, the uh, boycott, divestment, and, and sanctions movement, the BDS movement grew, is Palestinians increasingly began to believe that um, all of this dialogue and all of this peace process and all of this um, hoping for a state hadn't led to anything. The Palestinian Authority had was increasingly and is increasingly seen as a kind of protector of Israel, um, as a kind of you know, with the power of a dog catcher, um, to to essentially not really um, have power to stand up to Israel and say you know we this is how we're going to take our freedom. And so people saw the negotiations as a way to sort of sanction the ongoing occupation, which after all has not ended um, after nearly 60 years. So um, I think that's what made a lot of people, uh, you know, go away from those those dialogue groups. Um, mm. And I think it's in a way it's it's very sad. It's it's tragic actually, but you could understand it or I can understand it from a Palestinian perspective which is yeah you know what it good does did this do us um from an Israeli perspective I think that there is a a, a great sense of loss from someone like Dahlia for example who hasn't seen Bashir in years and who wonders about what he's doing and you know she wrote me recently that he was taken to prison again recently he's over 80 years old now um, and you know he was he was held in what's called administrative detention, which is um, basically a, a, a renewable uh, thirty I believe it's thirty day uh, sentence that can be renewed without charges um, when mm -hmm. someone is just suspected of something. Um, so I think she uh, is feels tragically that. Um, you know, she hasn't been in touch with Bashir, that all of their dreams of creating something new and and uh, sustained and and really uh, visionary, um, you know, hasn't come to pass. Mm. Again, I think someday uh, there can be a new chapter written, and I don't know when mm. that will be. Hmm. That was one of the questions I was going to ask was if you still keep in touch with any of the people that you wrote about. Um, it sounds like you have a little bit. I, is she is she still involved with the school that began that uh, came from the house? I think she's less involved. I think she has some involvement. I believe she's still on the board of that school, which is known as Open House. It's in Ramle, uh, Israel. Um, what used to be the town that Bashir and his family lived in and the house that Bashir and his family lived in. Um, so I, I, have heard from her a few months ago. Um, I haven't been in touch recently. I haven't been in touch with Bashir in quite a while. I do stay in touch mm -hmm. with, uh, some of the people I wrote about, um, in my book about the Palestinian musician and the music school he built. His name is Ramzi Abu Redwan and, and, uh, he and I are in touch uh, quite a bit. He lives part-time in Palestine and part-time in France with his family. Well, thank you so much for joining me today to have this conversation. Um, I am looking forward to folks being able to hear what you have to say, uh, not only about 
about your book, but also about your experience uh, in the Holy Land. And yeah, well, thank you very much for your interest and for asking me. I always like to take the opportunity to talk about this. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. And okay. thanks, everybody at home, too. Take care. Thank you for listening to Crossroads. Our managing editor is Jamie Staley, and our editors are Vashina Brisbane and Emily Dombroff.